Senate Crime Investigation Committee shifts its operations to Washington, where Attorney General J. Howard McGrath is among the witnesses. He urgently recommends new legislation to curb interstate gambling information. He is followed to the stand by J. Edgar Hoover, chief of the FBI, who makes an eloquent plea for stronger law enforcement at the local level, where he says the real evil lies. The gambling problem must be viewed as a phase of the entire crime picture. Organized gambling, gambling is a vicious evil. It corrupts our youth and blights the lives of our adults. It becomes a springboard for other crimes, embezzlement, robbery, and even murder. But like any other type of crime, it can be controlled. If the laws against gambling presently in the, on the state and local statute books were earnestly and vigorously enforced, organized gambling could be, eliminated, could be eliminated within 48 hours in any community in this land. No criminal, the gambler and his allies included, can long stand up before a determined, intelligent, and informed public opinion. That, in my opinion, is the basic answer to the gambling problem an aroused public opinion which will act on a local level through local law enforcement authorities to wipe out the menace. That was J. Edgar Hoover, director of the Federal Bureau of Investigation, testifying before the Senate Crime Investigation Committee in January 1951. Hoover had just celebrated his 56th birthday and had served for more than a quarter century as the director of the most powerful and pervasive investigative arm of the United States government. Like many middle-aged men, Hoover was at the height of his career in 1951. He was fully engaged in exposing alleged communists and homosexuals in all walks of life, and due to the work of his agents, Julius and Ethel Rosenberg would go on trial later in the year, accused of conveying atomic weapons secrets to the Soviet Union. Having taken over the Bureau in 1924 as an inefficient, scandal-ridden agency implicated in the Teapot Dome scandal, in the 1930s, Hoover built the bones of the FBI we know today. Data collection, advanced crime labs, and highly trained professional agents became the Bureau's hallmark, as did white men in business suits and fedoras who became national heroes during New Deal campaigns to capture the bank robbers and kidnappers that roamed the Midwest during the 1930s. The Bureau expanded exponentially during World War II, investigating Nazis and extending its reach to Latin America. Yet Hoover mostly sought success in domestic arenas that were likely to garner bipartisan support, financial crimes, and the fight against subversives. When he testified on gambling in 1951, Hoover was reluctant to push those investigations further to examine what he knew they would reveal, a sophisticated business run by organized criminal gangs that had cohered during Prohibition. These violent gangs would extend their reach to legal commerce after World War II, trucking, unions, laundries, bars, and other industries where illicit profits could be laundered, illegal businesses like drug dealing, gambling, pornography, and sex work. In his words to the Senate committee, Hoover did not reference any of these issues, but presented gambling as a moral problem that could be solved in 48 hours by an aroused public demanding change. Morality was a consistent theme of Hoover's almost half-century as director. Americans no longer respect respectability, he thundered during the war on crime in the 1930s. 
Yet Hoover had contradictions. For example, gambling was one of his own favorite pastimes. He was often seen at the track, and any losses, as they were for most celebrities, were generally forgiven by the track's owners. Similarly, Hoover, whose agents ferreted out homosexuals in government as national security risks, had a personal life that was shrouded in mystery. While he could be seen in nightclubs in proximity to beautiful women, his handsome assistant director, Clyde Tolson, was never far away. Hoover's family later explained his bachelorhood as a sign of his patriotism. As Margaret Hoover later told a biographer, her uncle was married to the FBI. Who was J. Edgar Hoover, and how does his life and career illuminate almost a century of American political history? That's what Yale historian Beverly Gage is here to talk to us about today. Her new book, G-Man, J. Edgar Hoover and the Making of the American Century, tells the story of this complex man who lived his whole life as a Washington insider, from his birth in 1895 to his death, still in office as the director of the FBI, in 1972. Join me as I talk to Beverly Gage in this episode of Why Now, where history and politics meet the challenge of today. And I'm your host, Claire Potter, a professor of history at the New School for Social Research and the author of the Political Junkie Substack. This is episode six, The Most Powerful Man in America. started with the basics. As you know, and I know, there are at least two scholarly biographies of J. Edgar Hoover out there. There are several others written by popular writers. There's a graphic biography. What did you know you wanted to contribute when you embarked on this project? There were a couple of things. So Hoover is obviously a household name and was during his lifetime, I think still at least for certain generations, still is a household name. So it's no surprise there's there's been quite a lot written about him. Um, but most of the really serious biographies of him were written kind of the late 80s and early 90s. So they were sort of the first generation after his death. Um, and lots of things have happened since that moment that I thought would really be interesting to explore in a new biography. One of those is that there are lots of new records that have come out, some of which I requested myself through the Freedom of Information Act, but a lot of records that have come from other scholars. And there are whole new fields of knowledge that we now have that I thought could really inform Hoover's story, uh, everything from you know, gay and lesbian history to our understandings of the construction of race and segregation in the early 20th century, to cultural history, um, many of which really hadn't been applied to him before. And then finally, we now are beginning to get a little distance on the 20th century. And so he just seemed like a really remarkable vehicle because he was there for so long doing so many things to tell just a big story of the United States in the 20th century. Well, yeah. And, you know, Hoover was really in the literature as an object of criticism by historians. And, you know, really during the last two or three decades, 
decades of the 20th century, writing about Hoover was really a way of sort of criticizing the entire American political project with, with Hoover at its at its core. How would you characterize your biography? Well, I came to Hoover with a lot of the same ideas that most people do, which is that he's one of the great villains of the 20th century. And I would say within American politics, he might be the single most universally hated person uh, in the 20th century. Uh, so there was really only one way to go with that, which is to make him a little bit more complicated than that one-dimensional story would suggest. It doesn't explain a lot his pure villainy about, uh, first of all, how he lasted in office as long as he did, but most importantly, and this is a major point of the biography, how he was so popular for so long, because I think since we know him for his abuses and excesses now, it's really easy to forget that he was one of the most popular figures at the grassroots throughout the country and one of the most kind of universally respected figures in Washington. And so in some ways, that's the biggest revelation of the biography was that was that some people liked J. Edgar Hoover once upon a time. I think that's really important. I mean, he wrote for popular magazines all the time or somebody wrote articles that were published under his name. Um, he was this sort of ever present stable figure. You know, presidents came and presidents went, but J. Edgar Hoover was already always there. Can you give our listeners an overview of this man's life and career? I know this is an enormous biography, but for those people who aren't really familiar with Hoover, what are they going to be reading about when they open your book? So Hoover is almost a pure creature of Washington in the most literal possible sense. He was born in Washington. D.C. in 1895, just a few blocks away from the Capitol. He came from a family with deep roots in Washington and deep roots in the federal government and federal civil service, which was incredibly unusual in the late 19th century, because frankly, the federal government didn't do very much then. Um, and he never left. So he lived there his whole life came of age in the Washington public schools, went to George Washington University, and then moved straight into the Justice Department uh, when he graduated in 1917. And he remained there his whole life. So he became head of the FBI in 1924. And he stayed in that job for a truly amazing 48 years <laughs> and died in that job in 1972 under Richard Nixon. So he was there from Calvin Coolidge to Richard Nixon. He had his fingers in just about everything that happened during the, that period. Um, and the story of his life is in a lot of ways a story about the growth of Washington, the growth of the federal government, uh, the growth of the security state, things that you actually wrote about in your first book called War on Crime, which was all about J. Edgar Hoover and the New Deal. And actually this really fascinating story that, you know, though Hoover was himself a kind of ideological conservative, um, he comes out of the FBI's power, comes out of this, this New Deal moment in, in the 1930s. Well, and, and Hoover is often seen as this kind of eminence grise, a power behind the throne, doing things that are just below the radar of democracy. And because of that, he's often spoken about as the most powerful American of his time and someone who had an outsized influence on political history. Is that the right way to think about it? Or did you come to think about him differently? I think there's a lot of truth to that image of Hoover. He 
built a bureaucracy that had a powerful secret apparatus. And the FBI did do things in secret that other people didn't know about. And Hoover, I think, understood himself really as the arbiter of the limits of American democracy. So groups that you didn't like, uh, most of them on the left in Hoover's case, but not always. They also uh, investigated lots of right-wing groups that Hoover thought were undermining the social order, challenging the legitimacy of the federal government. But he understood himself to be engaged in the project of policing the limits of political legitimacy. um, And a bunch of that was done in secret. But on the other hand, Hoover was, I think, much more public about what he was doing, uh, much more widely supported, uh, both among kind of ordinary people and among uh, muckety-mucks in Washington, than we necessarily understand him to be. So that image of him as this kind of rogue figure, you know, secretly intimidating people and blackmailing them and doing things in secret. I mean, he did do some of that stuff. But most of what he was doing was actually pretty public and pretty widely supported. And he had friends in the White House and friends in Congress and friends throughout the federal bureaucracy who were actually helping him to do it. One of the reasons that people think of Hoover as so all-powerful and as operating behind the scenes is exactly what you were talking about. He kept that job for 48 years under multiple presidents. What's the real explanation for why president after president after president never replaced Hoover with their own guy? Well, I think we have to think about early Hoover and late Hoover because they're not actually the same person. Um, So I think it is true that by the time you're getting up certainly into Kennedy and then Nixon, Hoover knew some things that they were concerned about. They didn't know what would happen if they fired him. And that's at least part of the reason uh, that he was able to stay on during those later years. But that doesn't explain all of his promotions as a young man. And it doesn't, I think, even in his later years, explain the totality of why he was there. So the first thing that we should give him credit for is that he was actually a pretty good administrator. So in the 20s and into the 30s, He was extremely dedicated to his job, and he was sort of a symbol of efficient, scientific, professional, good government service. We don't tend to think about him that way, but that was his reputation for much of his career. Uh, It's certainly what Franklin Roosevelt liked about him. Um, And it's really Roosevelt who who expands the FBI in significant ways. Um, And then as you get into later presidents and Hoover gets more independent power, he's certainly not above letting them know that he knows some things or could do some things that if they didn't agree with him, uh, that he, he, he might be able to you know, take some action. Uh, but he was also really popular. Um, he was also pretty effective at what he was doing during those years. And the great cause of his life, which was anti-communism, um, was something that Democrats and Republicans in the White House, in Congress and elsewhere, really fundamentally agreed about. And a lot of people, for instance, in the 1950s, saw Hoover as the kind of smart, responsible alternative to someone like Joseph McCarthy. So he's getting lots of support from both sides of the aisles. And Hoover is really, by the 1950s, a kind of standard bearer for American conservatism, too. Can you talk about that a little bit and how his influence emanates out into a larger conservative movement? Yeah, that's one of the kind of fundamental 
puzzles of the book, uh, or at least the way that I really think about Hoover. On the one hand, he comes out of this kind of professional government service, state building, scientific methods and efficiency, you know, a tradition that we tend to think of as being something that liberals and progressives embrace federal power more than conservatives. On the other hand, he is this deep and passionate ideological conservative on most of the major issues that he's committed to in his career. So that is a form of kind of law and order conservatism. He's a big crime fighter. He thinks, you know, criminals are individuals who need to be rooted out. They're immoral and need to be punished, as opposed to a kind of more social understanding of crime. Uh, Anti-communism is the issue of his life. And he didn't just mean, you know, communist spies, but he meant communism as a kind of existential challenge to the American way of life, everything from uh, religion to education uh, to how you were going to set up your economic system. Um, He was deeply conservative on questions of race, and he was a big promoter of American Christianity. He's constantly sort of haranguing people to go to Sunday school and to go to church um, and to be good Americans in that way. And he built a whole apparatus at the FBI to promote these ideas ideas and promote these values. Um, So he has a big PR operation, and these ideas are widely embraced by the emerging conservative movement beginning in the 1950s. There's one writer who in the 1960s calls J. Edgar Hoover the, quote, patron saint of the modern far right, uh, which is a funny thing to say because a lot of the right considered itself to be like against the deep state and against federal power and against all these things. But he was always the one exception because he was you know, so the John Birch Society loved J. Edgar Hoover. I should say more than J. Edgar Hoover loved John Birch Society because he thought they were a little, a, a little far off the off the spectrum for uh, for for his taste. Yeah, he he had a whole file on the John Birch Society, but he also had all of these former agents who would leave the FBI and go to work for other people, but they became a kind of alumni network that extended Hoover's capacity to gather information, to um, have influence on other things. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, though this is a very long book by any reasonable standards, um, because it is a biography, it meant I had to leave a lot of stuff out, and people may find that hard to believe. But I left a lot of stuff out. Uh, One of those pieces that I got really fascinated with were all of these ex-agents, because as Hoover built up this bureaucracy of thousands of agents, trained them in everything from investigation to public relations, a lot of them left the federal government and went on to do all sorts of things. So there's a small cohort of agents who become pretty prominent lecturers and radio hosts on the far right and become really critical to the conservative movement. There's another subset of agents who um, kind of found their own anti-communist investigative agencies, uh, private agencies, and they're really instrumental in uh, coming up with and administering the blacklist. Um, And the third group of agents that I became really fascinated with were all of the agents who left the FBI and went into Southern law enforcement. So as you begin to get into the big cases of the 1960s civil rights cases, you just see them 
everywhere. But Martin Luther King was in Birmingham, Alabama in 1963 in the famous de demonstrations. The super right-wing segregationist mayor of Birmingham was a former FBI agent. And Hoover... At the beginning, in the 1920s, when he takes over the FBI and into the 1930s, is hiring certain kinds of professionals, people who are lawyers, people who are accountants, and so on. But after World War II, we begin to see a shift, and Hoover is hiring a certain kind of person, so that culturally, a G-man is a certain kind of person. Can you describe that for us? What were the characteristics of the agents that Hoover liked to hire? When he became director of the Bureau in 1924, he hired out of a very small, tight-knit group of organizations, um, including his own university, George Washington, and his own fraternity, which was a pretty uh, reactionary, racist, segregationist Southern fraternity called Kappa Alpha. Um, and that was actually a really fascinating institution to research as I worked on the book. So he pulled a lot of that first generation of FBI officials out of those institutions, including his right-hand man and lifetime companion, Clyde Tolson, who we might talk more about. Um, and so for those first 20 or so years, he has a very specific vision of the kind of college-educated, professional, conservative, white man of a certain height and a certain weight uh, and a certain set of values who's going to be his agent core. And one of the reasons he can do that is because by a quirk of uh, history, the FBI wasn't actually subject to civil service rules. So, you know, normally if you're running a federal bureau or agency, you get a bunch of employees, they have to take civil service exams, and you kind of choose from this pool. He dedicated lots of time and energy to keeping the FBI out of the civil service so that he could pick and choose his men, who became known as G-men, and we all know what an FBI agent or a G-man looks like, right? He's that white guy in the suit and the hat and the shiny shoes, and he's not too tall and he's not too short. Um, then they have this big hiring boom, as you said, in the 40s and 50s, and so Hoover can't quite do as much hand-picking as he had done in earlier years, but he's still looking for men of a certain type, uh, and he kind of expands out. Lots of Catholics begin to come into the Bureau during those years. Uh, Mormons begin to come in. He, he maintained his affection for, you know, football-playing Southern Christian men as well. Uh, they made up a big part of the agent corps. Well, and... We also see another big shift in the FBI after World War II, or actually probably right before World War II, which is a big increase in informants. They don't have so many informants in the 1930s. It's a much smaller agency. It has much smaller capacity. But by the 50s and 60s, and you know anybody who has a parent who was communist adjacent, who's or ordered their FBI files, can see that there were all of these informants watching them, and they get a lot of Your dad's best friend was actually in right. <laughs> That's right. So can you can you talk about that decision to expand the FBI to include a range of people who are paid to inform, but who aren't really FBI types? Yeah, the FBI is a funny institution because, again, not really by design, but by kind of 
quirks of history and particularly the emergencies of the 1930s, uh, it comes of age as this sort of hybrid organization. So on the one hand, you have a law enforcement agency, right, which has certain laws that it enforces, and you're going to take those cases to court and do investigations. Uh, but it also becomes our domestic intelligence agency. And usually when you're doing domestic intelligence, you're gathering just information kind of for information's sake. Every once in a while, it might result in a prosecution or some such. But uh, the files are really the, the whole purpose. Um, so it's that context in which the FBI begins to really develop its enforcement networks, uh, first aimed at fascists and communists, um, and then really focusing in on the Communist Party in the 40s and 50s. Hoover had kind of a funny attitude about informants. We tend to think of undercover agents, uh, so actually people employed by the FBI going in and infiltrating an organization. But Hoover did not believe in undercover agents. He thought he didn't want his fine, upstanding young men mixed up with the likes of communists or mobsters or others. So uh, what that meant was that they ended up developing a huge network of informants who were either people who were already in organizations that they were investigating and were willing to inform on their friends and comrades, or who were, in fact, hired by the FBI, encouraged by the FBI to go ahead and join up with, say, the local Communist Party branch in order to inform back to the Bureau. Well, and there are people who have written about the civil rights movement, people who have written about the new left, about radical feminism, who say that this infiltration by informers actually had an effect on the movement, that they sowed discord, that people ceased to trust each other, that people would accuse each other of being FBI informants. So was the, the act of informing important in relation to gathering information, or was it important in relation to actually having a destructive effect on left organizations? It was definitely both. And they were very self-conscious about both pieces of what informants were supposed to do. Um, so they wanted information, and sometimes they got good information. Informants also, of course, sometimes give you terrible information and false information for a variety of reasons. So you have to judge their reliability. But they also understood informants as a disruptive tool. So a lot of COINTELPRO, which stood for Counterintelligence Program, which uh, is probably probably the most famous and notorious of the FBI's efforts during Hoover's reign, uh, was a disruptive program that really mostly made use of informants. And they had a pretty good sense, as you say, of like, what's going to ruin a social movement. And so they would tell informants everything from, you know, go to your meeting, try to drag it out, make it really long and boring, ask you know, really irrelevant questions, <laughs> and then try to factionalize and like fight over things. Try to get those two heads of your organization fighting with each other because they don't like each other. And actually, they're sleeping with the same person and nobody knows that. Right. So there was a lot of using informants in that way. And then they would also stage kind of fake informants for precisely the reasons that you suggest, accuse people themselves who were not actually FBI informants of being FBI informants. So they would come up with uh, an anonymous letter sent to another member of the organization saying, you know, I think that guy who sits next to you is an informant. It'd be totally untrue, but they understood precisely the disruptive and destabilizing power of these uh, informant networks, real and fake. So Hoover 
stands for a certain kind of America, an apple pie America, a mom and pop America. And you know where I'm going with this because I have made my listeners wait too long to talk about the sex. But for decades, actually back to the 1920s, journalists and then historians have inferred that Hoover was a gay man, but they've avoided saying it directly. They've also inferred in different ways that his repressed sexuality shaped his politics. First, was Hoover a gay man? Second, did it have an effect on who he became as an administrator of one of the most powerful agencies in the United States government? Well, not to be too Bill Clinton about it, but it depends on what you mean by gay man. Um, so I think from our perspective and from my perspective, I would say, yes, he was a gay man in this sense. Uh, he clearly never dated women. He had no interest in women. Uh, he clearly never had sex with a woman. And his primary effective relationships, uh, his primary love relationships were clearly with other men. So uh, the most important of those was Clyde Tolson, who uh, became uh, an, a bureau employee in 1928 and really became Hoover's social spouse for the next 40 plus years. Uh, they vacationed together. They were treated like a social couple. They moved through the world as what we would recognize as basically married gay men. But there are two caveats to this, at least. So one is that they certainly didn't describe themselves or probably understand themselves that way. And in fact, Hoover famously was, you know, one of the kind of great participants in the Lavender Scare. The FBI investigated thousands of federal employees in particular for uh, homosexual inclinations in the 1950s. And uh, many of those people were fired from the government. Um, and he was also really ruthless at tracking down anyone who suggested even, you know, in an overheard party conversation that he might be queer. Uh, he would send FBI agents to your door saying, the guy standing next to you at a party overheard you saying something. And then, you know, you don't want to say that's about the most wonderful man in the world who would never, ever, ever do anything like that. So, uh, so Hoover really wouldn't have understood himself or described himself that way. Um, if anything, uh, he he was a pretty um, ruthless uh, anti-gay warrior. Um, and I think the other thing is that we just don't know what they were doing in the bedroom. And so if actual sexual activity is a criterion for being a gay man, I really just, in the end, we do not know if Hoover had sex with men. Now, most people don't go through their lives not having sex with anyone, and Hoover certainly never had sex with women. So if he was having sex with anyone, which he probably was, it was men. But that's really all that we can, all that we can say about uh, his, his sex life, rumors of dress wearing and other things notwithstanding. So did it matter? Because there is, of course, this whole narrative out there that, and I think Ethan Theo Harris really leaned into it hard, that Hoover's repression, his inability to be happy as a 20th century modern person through love and sex, actually created this sort of vengeful, vicious person that went after other people. What do you say about that? I would say it mattered in the way that he built the FBI in who was in his agent corps, which was an intensely homosocial place um, that prized certain visions of 
uh, masculinity that were very important to Hoover. Um, I would say it also mattered in the sense that I think one key piece of his psychology, something that you see in everything from his childhood diaries to his later writings, uh, was a real belief in kind of self-discipline to keep, you know, dangerous thoughts and feelings at bay. And so I think that had a big influence on how he ran the FBI, on how he conducted himself. Um, And I uh, actually found in doing this research something that spoke very eloquently to me of maybe a little bit of his internal psychology and the way it uh, affected his professional image, which was that uh, in the early 1950s, a reporter happened to follow Hoover and Tolson into a bookstore in LA when they were on vacation. And he was not seen And he just looked at what they were buying and Clyde Tolson, you know, was buying some Westerns. Uh, But Hoover was buying his two really intense books of uh, psychoanalysis that were, one was called Our Inner Conflicts and the other was called something like Self-Analysis. And those books by the psychiatrist Karen Horney were really about what happens if you have built up an exterior image of yourself that doesn't align with your inner self and the kinds of self-torture, really, that that produces. The thesis of that book is that it produces a lot of rigidity, it produces uh, a lot of vengefulness, um, and it produces a lot of unhappiness. And um, I don't know if Hoover actually read those books, but he did buy them, so we can think that he read them. And I, I could, I, I could really imagine that he was trying to work those things. Out. Well, and he was a famously rigid person. I mean, a lot of what becomes the reform of the FBI, how agents dress, how they comport themselves, even down to there, there was the famous story about how the, he was once in a car. And the driver took a left turn and there was an accident. So he made a rule that, that his driver was never to take a left turn again. So he was, in fact, an incredibly orderly person. And it's it's easy to pin these things together and say, oh, yes, of course, he must have been terribly unhappy. But we don't actually have any evidence that he was unhappy, do we? No. And I think, you know, there are all sorts of uh, there is evidence to the contrary. I think it's actually harder for us to imagine him as being happy and someone with friends. He had friends. I mean, he and, uh, you know, God forbid, but he and Richard Nixon were pretty affectionate and they wrote sort of, you know, sweet, thoughtful letters to each other. (laughs) They considered each other friends. And, you know, one of the things that was really interesting to me about Hoover as well is though we tend to think of him again as this kind of miserable, friendless person, but, you know, he and Tolson were together for four decades and clearly were very supportive and pretty loving towards each other uh, throughout that time period. His secretary, Helen Gandy, stayed with him for 55 years. And so he clearly had the ability to engender loyalty, um, and if not love, but I think a certain kind of love. And in some ways, that's probably the hardest thing to imagine about him. Yeah. So we don't know about Hoover's inner life or his sexual life, but we do know that Hoover was a racist. So can you talk a little bit about how this shaped the 20th century? Yeah. So that is a true statement. Hoover was a racist. And one of my questions as a biographer was sort of where did he begin to develop these racial ideas, which of course weren't so unusual during his lifetime and certainly weren't unusual 
among uh, the Washington establishment. Um, but where did Hoover specifically begin to learn about race, think about race? And I, that goes back to Washington, D.C. So there were a couple of really interesting factors early on. One was the fact that you know, in the 1890s, the years that he was growing up, Washington is a segregating city. So it is not yet segregated, but it is going through a very, very conscious process of segregating. Um, so he grew up in a segregating city. He went to segregated schools. And there's a lot of talk during those years um, about why the separation of the races is so important. And it's particularly intense in Washington because it's a multiracial city that is trying to draw these very strict lines. Uh, the second big influence that I found from those early years was the fraternity we mentioned before, Kappa Alpha. Um, and his membership in Kappa Alpha had been mentioned in other books. But when I began to look into what Kappa Alpha was, I found it, frankly, totally jaw-dropping. So Kappa Alpha really was, first of all, a fraternity founded in 1865 to honor the legacy of Robert E. Lee and carry on the cause of the white South. Um, and by the time Hoover joined, it was one of the kind of central networking institutions of segregationist Southern Democrats. And so you have lots and lots of Southern politicians and other figures who were either members of or alums of Kappa Alpha who were sort of in Hoover's world. One of them is John Temple Graves, who was a famous segregationist newspaper editor, uh, a great champion of lynching, uh, of the Atlanta race riot as a productive racial purge. Um, and another was Thomas Dixon, who wrote uh, A Klansman, which went on to become Birth of a Nation, which was uh, screened by Hoover's fraternity in 1915 when he was in, in college. So they're big figures in his fraternity, and I think they really shaped his his racial views. Um, and so he builds the FBI around those racial ideas and from very early on is investigating black organizations, civil rights organizations. Um, we've got lots of uh, famous and quite devastating, sometimes illegal campaigns against 60s figures like Martin Luther King, the Black Panthers, um, almost anyone you can name on the civil rights spectrum during the 60s. But then there were actually some interesting moments on this front as well, where Hoover, I think, ran a little counter to type, um, not to say that he wasn't uh, viewing these situations through racist lenses, but he did initiate campaigns uh, to investigate lynchings in the 40s. Uh, he did go after the Ku Klux Klan in the 1960s, largely because he viewed those forms of kind of extreme violent racism um, as kind of a danger to the social order. And often those were groups who were sort of thumbing their nose at the federal government too, and at federal law enforcement, which he, he did not like at all. Yeah, and proponents of segregation often argued that it was a way of keeping order, that if you had segregation, there would be no racial violence because there would be no friction between the races. So, so that makes perfect sense. So I want to pivot a little bit. You had a ton of fresh sources for this book. And I'm wondering, what is something you learned that really surprised you? Well, I got really... Um sort of obsessed with the solo files. So solo was 
an FBI operation in which beginning in the late 1950s, um, the FBI had two guys inside the Communist Party, one of whom was the international representative of the Communist Party, um, and the other of whom was the monetary financial courier of money coming in largely from the Soviet Union into the Communist Party. Um, so I got really interested in their story, which only comes up a little bit in the book, but in part because it seemed so clear that a lot of the things that I had heard as a kind of good lefty growing up uh, about the Communist Party actually were quite a lot more complicated, right? Things about Soviet espionage, which was real and which the Communist Party was participating in, the amount of money flowing from the, com from the Soviet Union into the Communist Party, all of those pieces, which didn't fundamentally you know, change certain pieces of what I thought about the Communist Party, but a lot of that material actually made me give the FBI a little more credit and think that uh, the story of the Red Scare is actually quite a lot more complicated than our uh, than our national morality tales, which tend to be pretty black and white, uh, have suggested. That's really interesting. So this is my last question, Bev. Why should our readers read your book now? Well, I think many of the issues that were really central to Hoover's life and career are still front and center in our politics. So if you want to understand if you want to understand the evolution of the modern conservative movement, I think Hoover's really critical. If you want to understand what the FBI is up to these days, and they're a pretty important actor in our own time, uh, again, understanding the FBI's origins and uh, some of the tensions that have always been there between being kind of nonpartisan investigators and being sucked uh, into highly politicized situations. Um, that's a lot of what this book is about. Um, and I think if you want to understand things like race and policing, I mean, Hoover was one of the great architects of police training, police training that was often initiated through a very particular kind of racialized lens. Um, so there's that as well. And I guess the last thing that I would say, and this is really a central argument of the book, is that uh, we've tended to think of Hoover as this kind of rogue, bad actor, but actually Hoover was at the center of American politics with incredibly broad support for most of his life. And in some ways, he kind of represents the dark side of the American past that, uh, that we need to know about, that we need to contend with, and that we actually need to take some collective responsibility for, right? He happened to die at a convenient moment um, and become a scapegoat for all sorts of good reasons. I mean, he's a, he's a deserving scapegoat, uh, but it also meant that people could say, aha, you know, it was all Hoover's fault rather than thinking uh, about the forces that made a figure like that possible. Sounds really important. And listeners, the holidays are coming up. This is the book to buy for your dad for Christmas. Um, <laughs> it is the perfect dad And your book. mom and your kids. And yeah, <laughs> and your uncle. And <laughs> Beautifully written, fascinating story. Beverly Gage, thank you so much for being on the show. Thanks, Claire. This was lots of fun.
And that's it for today's show. You can go to the Political Junkie Substack at clairepotter.substack.com for show notes and to listen to more episodes, leave a comment, or ask a question. You can subscribe to Political Junkie for free, which gets you one newsletter a week that may or may not include a podcast. Or you can pay as little as $5 a month to get every podcast and every newsletter delivered straight to your desktop two times a week. You can also participate in subscriber chats. You can subscribe to Why Now on Apple iTunes, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. Please leave a rating and a comment so that other listeners can find us. Please share this podcast with a friend who loves history, politics, and smart conversation. Why Now is supported by the New School for Social Research and by paying subscribers to Political Junkie. Why Now and Political Junkie are written, recorded, edited, and produced by me, Claire Potter. Show notes, technical assistance, and research are by Emma Kern. My opening theme is by Galaxy News, and my closing theme is by Avocado Junkie. You can find both of these terrific artists on soundstripe.com. That's all for now. I'll see you next time.